Now we're looking at the book of Colossians. We've been looking under the three headings in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 of love for all the saints, or faith in Jesus Christ, love for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in the gospel. Today we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3 under the idea of love for all the saints. Uh, let me read this, and verses 1 through 4 play into this very uh, carefully. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once walked, uh, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander, filthy language from your lips, do not lie to one another, since each of you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him." And we're talking about this morning the whole idea of having love for all the saints. And it's amazing what love can do. Back when I was an undergrad student at Columbia Bible College, Columbia, South Carolina, uh, in fact, I think it was the year that we were in the graduate school, Pat and I were living in an apartment, and down at the foot of the apartment door um, was another block of apartments, and Nancy Sharp, lived in the first door right there. Well, Nancy um, had cats. We had a cat. Nancy and her boyfriend would go out of town for the weekend, and so the deal would be Nancy would talk to my wife, Pat, and Pat would go over and take care of Nancy's cats. Well, Pat's going through there, and there's all kinds of things. The cats' names were Loki, Vulcan, and something else. These names ought to give you a little clue. There were tarot cards. There were all kinds of other little occult things in the apartment. Well, we were praying for Nancy. We had not met her boyfriend, Tommy, but we'd seen him. And so 
weeks, months, and then all of a sudden, one Sunday, we're coming home from church, and here's Nancy, and she is dressed to the tens. It's about 12.30 on Sunday uh, afternoon. And I looked at Pat, and I said, Pat, Nancy's been to church. And I said, when we get home, you need to go see her. Well, Pat kind of delayed that a little while. And the next thing that happened, Pat walked down, knocked on Nancy's door. Nancy opened the door and literally fell with her arms across my wife. She'd become a Christian the day before. Now, how'd she become a Christian? That's an interesting thing. Nancy was the head nurse of a cardiovascular surgery center at Providence Hospital, Columbia, South Carolina. And this was a busy place. While we were there, they did the very first bypass surgery uh, in Columbia, or in all of South Carolina. Well, there was a secretary that worked in that department, and her name was Ruthie Weed. Ruthie's husband was at the Bible College as an undergrad student, and Ruthie was sitting there just doing clerical things, and she was not very busy because this was a pretty up-and-coming part of the hospital. So doctors would come by and see her idle and say, Ruthie, would you do this? Well, pretty soon the word got around that Ruthie's answer was always yes. So pretty soon, Ruthie would have a stack of stuff over here to do, and our friend Nancy hated what she saw. She hated it. These people are taking advantage of you, Ruthie. You are in this department, and you're not all these people's servant. Well, Ruthie came back, well, look, I'm not busy. The hospital's paying me eight hours a day. Why not? So Ruthie, I mean, this woman was efficient. The pile would be here, and the pile would be there, and the pile would be gone. She's just that, had those kind of gifts. This went on for months. And my friend Nancy's anger grew almost with every passing day. One day, she walked right up to Ruthie, and she demanded of her. She said, Ruthie, I don't know what you've got, but whatever it is, I want it. That was the statement. Ruthie gave her a cassette tape of a man's testimony at the Bible College. She went home on Friday, went into the little area behind her apartment and was laying out, listening to the cassette, heard the man's testimony about faith in Christ, asked Christ into her life. Then we are involved in discipling her, seeing her boyfriend come to faith in Christ, and then being a part of their wedding, and we still have a very strong relationship to this day, and that's some uh, 33 years ago, 34 years ago. What love can do as a Christian witness is what we need to see here. Paul is writing this church, and he is telling them that they're a healthy church because of these things, faith, hope, and love. 
Now, this idea of love or ideal of love is an Old Testament ideal. The first of the commandments in the Ten Commandments is about loving God. The rest of the commandments is about loving your fellow man. You can remember the dialogue between Jesus and one of the religious leaders about what was the chief and foremost commandment, to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes on, and sometimes the, uh, the religious leaders of the time would want to excuse themselves. You remember the very quibble question that they threw out? Well, just who is my neighbor? And we get the Samaritan story. And the end of the Samaritan story is to the Pharisees, you go and do likewise. In other words, act like the Samaritan did. Well, then we get the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We get this love others as you love yourself. Uh, this is the commandment, Jesus says. This is my commandment that you love one another. Uh, the Apostle John picks up on this, and he's all through 1 John, he's saying, little children love one another. you got to remember, he was one of the sons of thunder. I mean, he was quite a testimony himself. This is the kind of guy that probably his eyebrows grew together. Uh, he was kind of a foreboding kind of a person. But he became the beloved disciple. He listened to Jesus. What Jesus was teaching, he was absorbing, and he became what Jesus taught. He became a great person to talk about love. Paul, the same way. And you see that here's the man who's telling us that this church is a healthy church. This is a man who writes 1 Corinthians 13. Luke, in the book of Acts, says the Christians were identified by this one quality, my, how they love one another. And so what we're seeing here is this healthy church. But Paul has been asked to write this church a letter. The pastor is having a problem, not so much in the church, but with the environment in which the church exists. And there's a lot of external pressures on this church, and these pressures are threatening uh, this very aspect of the health of the church and their ability to love. So it's because of a level of spiritual legalism that Paul writes this letter. He knows that if this church allows this legalism in or tolerates this legalism, it's going to create what we would call today spiritual superstars, people who appear to have it more together than anybody else in the church. And a lot of times what he is fearful of has been his own experience in the past that wherever there is a level of this sense of a superstar, there is a distance between the rest of the church. Where this distance comes in, it breeds a level of suspicion going in both directions. And so Paul is writing against this sense of there being uh, these, this type of spiritual superstars. Some of these people would be superior in their outward walk, and they would appear and conduct themselves on people as judges over others' moral failings. Uh, some of these believers would uh, 
get into a level of religious philosophies and spiritualities and believe that they had received uh, special personal revelations directly from God, and they would use this as a means of distancing themselves from the average Christian, holding themselves up to be a superior. Again, this whole idea of distance, this whole thing of suspicion, and where this comes into a church, the basic sense of loving one another is just going to go right out the door. Now, it's hard to say this. I've always thought this, but I've never said this. But I read it last night. <laughs> so... I was reading Philip Yancey's new book, What Good is God? So if you want a good read, this is a good read. What Good is God? In there, he comes to this passage and he says in Colossians chapter 2 that Paul rails. <laughs> uh, sometimes I feel like I'm railing. Uh, I'm not sure that it's always bad. But Philip Yancey says that Paul is railing against the legalism. In other words, he knows how dangerous it is to the health of a church, to the health of Christians, and he is going to be on it and clarify its weaknesses and wrongfulness, and he is going to say that it can't be tolerated. That's what's going on in chapter 2 as you read it. It's a very loving chapter. We should be thankful to be corrected. We should thank be thankful that there is correction given in the church. But Paul is writing to this church, it's healthy, he wants it to maintain its health. Now let's see, if there are human standards, he calls it man-made religion in the end of chapter 2, then there's God's standards that stand over against man-made religion. And God's standards are exactly what's being spoken of in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. You want to know that you're a spiritually healthy person. Do you have a clear personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your God, as your Savior, as the forgiver of your sins, as the bequeather of eternal life? Do you sink your roots down into him in the scripture and do you draw out strength from him as you learn more about him this is faith in Christ do you have that that's a major thing in God's standards do you have love remember what 1 John says God is love do we have love for others? Again, it's primarily in this book, love for all the saints. And then in the chapter 4, it's also a type of conduct that shows that we have love for those who are outside the church with the hope that the love we demonstrate will bring them to faith in Christ in the same way that Ruthie Weed's testimony brought Nancy Sharp and Tommy Mann to faith. And so we should have love for all the saints, and we should have a clear hope of heaven. You know, it's just odd that you talk to Christians about this, and they really don't know where they're going. <laughs> you know, we should not only know who we are,
but we should know where we're going. We're going to heaven. And we should be clear in that expression, explaining to people that that is our hope, this is our confidence, this is our assurance, that we belong to God, and when God's children die, God takes his children to himself, where is that place? That place is heaven. So a healthy church here has love for all the saints. Now look at chapter 3, verse 11. Paul is doing something here in the selfsame way he is making other expressions for other aspects of emphasis in the book of Colossians. He's using a great deal of detail and repetition in order to make sure we do not miss his emphasis. So he says that in Christ there is no distinction between a person who is a Greek or a person who is a part of the Old Testament saints, a Jew. Once you come to faith in Christ and into the church, you can see how this is addressed to the church that's in Colossae, you come into the body of Christ, and you can see how that's being emphasized in this chapter and in back in chapter 1. We come into one body. Uh, when we're looked at by God, it's not looked at by distinctions, that we are this type of person or another type of person. The key is that we're in Christ. He uses the terms in a different way. This is the kind of the idea of what we call Hebrew parallelism. So instead of seeing Gentile and Jew, he says circumcised and uncircumcised. He wants to make sure he's clear. He wants to make sure everybody gets it. Then he begins to talk about those people that are non-Jews. He talks about barbarians. Now, I've used this word a number of times back in another series that we talked about. This is one of those words that we call an onomatopoeic word. Onomatopoeic word. In other words, we get the word from the way we hear this word. And so if you've ever been somewhere where people are talking in a foreign tongue, very often it comes across like this, because of the way. We've got a common friend who is Korean. I mean, trying to listen to her on the cell phone with a little bit of a hearing problem, and I don't get but about, I don't know, I probably get two-fifths to three-fifths of what she's saying, and I have to listen. Sometimes I'm taking the phone from this side to the other side. Sometimes it's when I'm driving down the road and I'm really at a loss trying to get it. Barbar, 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 bar. Well, they had a name for those kind of people, barbarians. That's where the word comes from. They're not like us. They don't talk like us. They don't think like us. They're not like us at all. They call them barbarians. Now, Paul's saying that when a barbarian comes to faith in Christ, they're a Christian, and God doesn't look at them the way we would normally look at them. And so you've got this whole sense of this type of, a, of an individual in the church. The Scythian, well, let me just put it this way. He was as bad to the bone as a person could be. 
This was the barbarian's barbarian. And so then you have this sense that the great majority of people that were in the Roman Empire were slaves. And then you've got people that are free. Probably the sense here isn't that they're Roman free in the sense that they're Romans, but in the sense that they're just non-slaves. But all of these people had come into the church. This is a healthy church. It's got people from every tongue and tribe and nation, and they're all kind of come together because they've come to faith in Christ. And the idea here is that it's difficult to bridge these things, and the bridge is love. The love that's in Christ that comes into our life, comes out of our life, and crosses over to other people. And so the sense here is that we, we cannot lose any sense of who the people are that should be loved. The Pharisees said this question, if I'm to love my neighbor as myself, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Paul is making sure we don't miss the point. He's telling us, whoever comes into the church is the neighbor, and we need to be loving. In chapter 4, again, in verses uh, 5 and 6, he's talking about conducting yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of your opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each other. It's important for us to see that like this girl, Ruthie Weed, God may be using you, he may be using me as an instrument to sow, to plant, to water, to harvest. We don't know which one of these aspects we would be playing in somebody's life. But we need to do what we can in a loving way towards those who are outside so that they will come into the faith as well. The idea of all of this is to bring glory to Christ. If we love him, we do what he commands, and we love one another. Again, you can see that Paul had this great transformation. He hated Gentiles. He becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. One of my buddies, uh, when we started the church up at Lake Oconee, wasn't very long before this couple, Tom and Miriam Hill, uh, I found out that they had been in a church on the east side of Atlanta and that they had built a log cabin on the north end of Lake Sinclair. So I went up to visit them and we got to be really good friends until they moved away and both of them now passed away. But they raised a bunch of boys there on the east side of Atlanta. They were probably one of the first people up there to build one of these massive ranch houses. And the ranch house was built on a basement. All the boys lived in the basement, and the mom and dad lived up on the main level. And Miriam, I mean, you know, if Miriam was in this church, all you guys would have lipstick on you by now. She'd been here. Because she would have had to swoop on each and every one of you. And that's just the way she was. And so that's what she had to do every night. And she would make it down the hallway, going from one room to another, kissing her boys goodnight. And she just kissed Danny, gone down the hall, gotten to kiss the next boy when Danny's room exploded. 
literally exploded. And his door was locked, but the daddy had built a crawl space between the closets. So in through the crawl space went one of the boys, unlocked the, boy, the door, and Danny is plastered. Uh, Danny lost two or three fingers in this episode. What was he doing? He was building a bomb to bomb a black church. That's what he was doing. Danny Hill, building a bomb to bomb a black church. There you go. <laughs> All right, time goes on. John F. Kennedy gets killed. You remember one thing that started right then that I don't think it ever heard, occurred before? We had these mass feedings up at the Capitol. I don't think it ever happened before. But people descended on Washington, D.C., and they went out to the various, the, the Edwards Air Force Base there, isn't that Edwards there? And they took hangers and they put big tables and chairs around, and the government began to bring food in, and they bust these people that were there because there was just no way to feed those people with the restaurants in D.C., and they brought them out there and fed them. Well, Danny came in. He decided to go to this. He'd become a Christian, so he decided to go to this. Well, he got into this feeding area, and there was an empty table, and he went and sat down at that empty table, and he was just getting ready to eat when he saw a whole drove of black people coming, and they were going to sit down at that table. <laughs> Danny said he shot up like a Polaris missile out of his chair, and it was like two hands. He said literally it was like two hands, and nobody was there that had their hands on their, his shoulders and just gently pushed him down into that chair. And Danny was transformed just like that. That's what Christ can do. Danny went on to be an ordained Baptist pastor, but all of his preaching during all of his seminary time was almost exclusively in black churches. He went on to be a career missionary in Bangladesh and Thailand, and then he came home here and he was playing uh, Oriental driver on an interstate somewhere up in Kentucky, and the Ford Explorer left the highway and he got killed. I went to his funeral. It was a mass of people, black, white, all kinds of Asian people. They all loved Danny. Danny loved all them. Now, Paul went through that transformation. I've been through a transformation. You've been through a transformation. We can't do this by ourselves. We shouldn't try to do this by ourselves. We should look to Christ. Now, as you look at this passage of Scripture, you see in verses 5, it's talking, what does it mean to love people? Can we be immoral and really love other people? Can we be impure? Can we have this kind of passion and evil desire and greed? These sins we're told to put to death. The language here is not to play with them, but to kill them. Down a little lower, it says there are things that have to be put off. And those things are anger and wrath and malice, verbal sins against other people. We can't say that we love people when we're running around all over town 
talking them down. It's just, it's just impossible. James says you can't have out of the same well fresh and bitter water. It's wrong. And so Paul is saying these are things that we put aside. Now again, back in the first chapter, there's a, a, a verse in there around verse 7 or 8, and it talks about we're strengthened with all power according to his glorious might to have patience and endurance. It's the only really clear uh, reference to the work of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives. And the word love in the Spirit, just a few verses prior to that. But it's the Holy Spirit that works in us, that transforms us like this. But we have to give way. We have to be willing to be willing. We have to surrender. And then we find that loving comes quite, not naturally, but supernaturally. In the positive sense, you see it in verses 12 and following. If we've been chosen of God and we're supposed to be holy and beloved, then putting on the character of Christ and the heart of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and then it goes on and on, put on the the perfect bond of unity, love, let Christ's peace rule in your heart, indeed let you become one body, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and when these things begin to happen on the positive side, then what we find is the character of Christ truly has transformed us. Again, it's a process. You may be transformed in a twinkling of an eye, but there will be work to do to bring your conduct into harmony with your transformation. You would like to think that you could just flip a switch and go from being one kind of person to being another kind of person, but it doesn't work that way. There's trials and temptations. There's opportunities of obedience. How do we do this? I find that chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, if you'll read these verses over and over and over again, let them become a rubric in your life, something that you'll fall back on in just all these dimensions. The statement begins with a kind of a question that assumes a positive answer, since or if you've been raised up with Christ, if you've come to faith in Christ, then we're admonished to keep seeking the things above. Keep seeking them. Now, if you're like me, the, the teachers had me nailed from the first grade. It, I mean, I can remember in the first grade, and we had a man in the 11th grade who was a general, and he was my algebra teacher. He said the exact same thing in the 11th grade that was said in the first grade, and some of you say the same thing to me today. John, you need to learn to stay on task. You'd just be really helped if you'd just stay focused and stay on task. I mean, 
My mom would get a call from the teacher, you need to come down to the office, Miss Barkley, the elementary school principal, second through sixth grade, my goodness. I used to skirt her house on the way home, and I didn't want to be seen <laughs> by Mrs. Barkley. <laughs> I had to get back on task. We're going to fail here. Keep seeking means when you fail, go back on task. Set your mind on the things above again. There's no beat up. You're going to fail. There's no beat up. There's encouragement. Get back on task. Focus on Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is the one that promises that he has the wherewithal to change your life. Set your mind on things above. Listen, these issues of loving people, unless you've made a determination that you're going to do it, can I tell you something? You're not going to give it any effort. You won't. Unless you've got a clear vision and a clear intention to love other people, the vision's here. The intention needs to be within you based upon the truth. But if we intend to do it, then God through Christ and the Holy Spirit promises that he who began a good work in you will complete that good work. Many people of my era, racious, not today, they're changed. We've got to love one another if we're going to change our culture. It's the biggest weakness that we've got in our culture right now in the life of the church is we don't love one another the way we should. But the answer, again, is our intention and then our connection to Christ. If you're reading his word day by day, memorizing his word, letting his word have its way in your life, transformation takes place. This is a healthy church. They have faith in Christ Jesus. They have love for all the saints. And they have a clear hope of heaven. Let's be healthy Christians and work on our churches being healthy churches. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look in your word, to think about its implications, its truth, its power, um, its ability to change the world, to change us. Now work that change in us over and over until we see it perfected and we are changed from one degree of glory to the point where we stand before the Lord and see him just as he is. Now we pray this in his name. Amen.